We are continuing together our study in our church's doctrinal statement on the subject of the Lord's Supper. And we are studying together chapter 30 uh, of our Confession of Faith, which deals with the subject of the Lord's Supper. Now, uh, in our previous studies, which have covered uh, several weeks together, we have looked at the institution of the Lord's Supper in paragraph 1. And I'll just read that over, and we'll see the inauguration of the Lord's Supper, uh, the observation of the Lord's Supper, and then, of course, the purpose of the Lord's Supper. In paragraph 1, it says, The supper of the Lord Jesus was instituted by Him the same night wherein He was betrayed, to be observed in His churches unto the end of the world, for the perpetual remembrance and showing forth the sacrifice in his death, confirmation of the faith of believers in all the benefits thereof, their spiritual nourishment and growth in him, their further engagement in, and to all duties which they owe to him, and to be a bond and pledge of their communion with him and with each other. So that is uh, when it was inaugurated, um, where it's to be observed in the church to the end of the world and what its purposes are to remember his sacrifice, to declare his sacrifice, to confirm our faith, to feed and grow our souls, to motivate us to service and to accomplish our communion with Christ and his people. Now, beginning in paragraph two, um, the authors of our confession begin to um, argue against the perversions of the Lord's Supper that were common in their day and are common in our day as well. And these perversions largely revolve around the observation of the Lord's Supper as is practiced by the Roman Catholic Church. Their understanding of the Lord's Supper and the Protestant understanding of the Lord's Supper are radically different from each other. And so uh, since our Confession of Faith was written in 1689, which was during the Protestant uh, Reformation. Um, there was a great deal of um, concern to break away from unbiblical practices of Rome and to establish uh, the biblical truth regarding uh, various doctrines, not the least of which was the doctrine of the Lord's Supper. And so when we come to paragraph two, it talks about the nature of the Lord's Supper it talks about what it is not and what it is, and then it gives a sound reproof to the a perversion of it that is practiced by the Catholic Church. So it says in paragraph two, this ordin in this ordinance, in this ordinance of the Lord's Supper, Christ is not offered up to his Father, nor any real sacrifice made at all, for the remission of the sins of the living or dead. But, in contrast to that, it's only a memorial of that one offering up of himself by himself upon the cross, once for all. And, secondly, it is a spiritual oblation of all possible praise unto God for the same. Now the conclusion. So that the popish sacrifice of the Mass, as they call it, is most abominable injurious to Christ's own only sacrifice, the alone propitiation for all the sins of the elect. 
So this chapter gets into the controversy of what is the significance and meaning of the Lord's Supper? The Protestants say it's one thing, the Catholics say it's another. And so we're going to be looking at the Bible to see what it says in relationship to that. Now, um, what I wanted to do is uh, I brought my old Catholic Bible with me. I used to be a Roman Catholic. And uh, in the back of this Bible is a, is a Catholic dictionary. And I'm just going to read to you a little bit out of the Catholic dictionary so you'll know out of their mouth what they teach. And then we'll look at the scriptures and see what, in fact, they teach. Now, you'll notice that our confession says, In this ordinance of the Lord's Supper, Christ is not offered up to the Father, nor any real sacrifice made at all for the remission of the sins of the living and the dead. Now, the reason why they're saying this is not what the Lord's Supper is about is because the Catholic Church says it is what it's about. And just to demonstrate that there's no misrepresentation they're teaching here, I will read out of their own documents, out of their own Catholic dictionary that they publish in their own Bible. Under the article on the Mass, it says this, The sacrifices of the new covenant, they call it the new law, in which the sacrifice of Calvary, the sacrifice of Calvary is where Jesus died, right? The sacrifice of the new covenant in which the sacrifice of Calvary is represented and renewed in an unbloody manner the divine victim offering himself under the appearance of bread and wine as he did at the Last Supper when he instituted the Eucharistic sacrifice and celebrated the first Mass. So they themselves say that the Mass is a a ceremony in which the sacrifice of Calvary is renewed under the appearances of the bread and the wine. Okay, so there's, a, there's a, a new offering of Jesus in the bread and the wine, just like there was on the cross. Now, another article entitled The Real Presence says this, The presence of Christ in the Blessed Sacrament. The Council of Trent Explaining the traditional belief of the church teaches us that in the sacrament of the Eucharist, the body and blood of our Lord, together with his soul and divinity, are contained truly, really, and substantially, not merely in sign, figure, or virtue. Christ is present, moreover, whole and entire, both under the appearance of bread and under the appearance of wine, and remain as long as these appearances remain. The Eucharist, therefore, is not merely a sign or symbol of Christ's presence, nor is Christ present therein merely by virtue of the effects which the sacrament produces, nor merely because apprehended by faith. Rather, by transubstantiation, Christ becomes really and physically present in the sacrament 
of the Eucharist. And so they say that the bread actually becomes the literal body of Christ and the wine actually becomes the literal blood of Christ. And Christ isn't just there in symbol. He's really there. And when you eat the bread and when you drink the wine, you're actually eating and drinking the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ. Um, <clears throat> this next article that I want to read to you is one called The Sacrifice of the Cross. <clears throat> it says, The voluntary offering made by Christ when he shed his blood on the cross in redeeming the human race, it is the most perfect and true sacrifice that ever has been or could be offered, and the efficacy of every means of grace is ultimately derived from that sacrifice. Christ was both priest and victim in this sacrifice as he freely offered himself to the Father, superior to every sacrifice that man could offer, in the infinite dignity of the offerer, in the quality of the victim, in its fully definitive and efficacious nature, and in its acceptance by God. It is unique and everlasting. Well, that all sounds pretty good. Now they go on to say, during the New Testament, the same sacrifice is made present in the world until the end of time in the sacrifice of the Mass. So what they're saying is the very same sacrifice that was done on Calvary 2,000 years ago is done presently in the world every time the Mass is celebrated. They go on to say, under an article called The Sacrifices of the New Law or the New Covenant, the sacrifice of Christ in opposition to the many sacrifices of the old law, which were but types of the sacrifice of Calvary, this unique and everlasting sacrifice is made present again in the Mass, in making his own perfect sacrifice available in the Mass, in inviting men to offer themselves in union with him. Christ satisfied the constant need of men for sacrifice and provides a means by which the graces he merited by his death might be applied to individual men. So what they're saying is, you know, from the beginning of time, men had this need for constant sacrifice. We see it with Cain and Abel starting out from the beginning, right? And all through the time of Abraham and all through the time of the Old Covenant, always sacrifices, repetitive, ongoing, continuous sacrifices. And what they're saying is, therefore, mankind has this need for repetitive, ongoing, continuous sacrifices. And the Lord's Supper meets that need by making a repetitive, ongoing, and continuous sacrifice of Christ from now to the end of the world. So we get to have constant sacrifices just like the Old Testament folks did, except we just have one, which is Christ, which we offer over and over again. They had many. They offered bulls, and they offered goats, and they offered sheep, and they offered birds, and meal offerings and all these other things, and we just have one. And then the final article I want to read you is the one on transubstantiation, <clears throat> and it says this. 
The change which takes place at the pronunciation of the words of consecration at the Mass, whereby the whole substance of the bread and wine there present become the true body and blood of Christ, only the appearances of the bread and the wine remain. The fact of the real presence of Christ in the Holy Eucharist is evident from the obvious meaning of several very clear passages in the New Testament. And they quote several passages in which Jesus said, you know, this is my blood, do this in remembrance of me. This is my body, do this in remembrance of me. And um, so they, they take those um, uh, metaphors and they, and they literalize them. Except to eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. So we have to literally become cannibals and eat the literal flesh and blood of Jesus if we're going to truly um, fulfill these passages in which Jesus was obviously speaking symbolically. And uh, we looked at those passages previously and, and saw that to be the case. And so they say, this fact has always been believed in the church and it was solemnly defined as an article of Catholic faith by the Council of Trent against the Protestants who had denied it in the 16th century. So I won't read any more to you. There's truckloads of it there. And uh, that's why our confession says in paragraph two, in this ordinance... Christ is not offered up to his father, nor is any real sacrifice made at all for the remission of sin of the living and the dead. So they deny what the Catholic Church teaches. Well, then what is the nature of the Lord's Supper? Well, it consists of two things. It says, but it is only, number one, a memorial of that one offering up of himself by himself upon the cross once for all. And secondly, it is a spiritual offering, says oblation, a spiritual offering of all possible praise to God for the same. So what are we doing when we're celebrating the Lord's Supper? Well, something way different than the Catholics are doing. What we're doing is we're having a memorial and we're offering a sacrifice of praise to God. Where they're having a real, genuine, bona fide sacrifice in which Jesus is once again sacrificed on the altar in the same way he was sacrificed on the cross. There's real body and real blood there and a real sacrifice made over and over and over and over again. So two totally different views of, of what's going on here. Now, last time we began to look at the scripture passages that would demonstrate um, the fallacy of the Catholic teaching and the legitimacy of the Protestant teaching. And we want to look at those passages again today. Um, and uh, we'll move through them uh, quickly because we looked at them last time. But the first passage that we want to look at is John 19 and verse 30 which, by the way, is the subject of our sermon this morning uh, in our communion service um, in the providence of God. We've been preaching on the seven sayings of Christ on the cross, and this is the one we're dealing with uh, this Sunday or this morning. So in John 19, 
in verse 30, Jesus is hanging on the cross. And when Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the spirit. And of course, when Jesus said it is finished, he was referring to, among other things, his sacrifice on the cross. And he says, my sacrifice is done. It's finished. It's over. And the clear implication is it doesn't ever need to be offered again. Now, the trouble with the Old Testament sacrifices is that they were never finished. Okay. And why were they never finished? Because they were imperfect sacrifices that could never make the comers thereunto perfect. Okay. Because if they had, they would have ceased to have been offered. And that's why Jesus' sacrifice was uh, never offered again because it was uh, a perfect sacrifice. So let's turn to Hebrews chapter 9. And we'll read over this passage that we looked at last time. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 25 to 28. We'll start at verse 24. Hebrews 9, 24. It says, For Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, that is, into the Old Testament tabernacle, which are figures of the true tabernacle. But he has entered into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then must he have often suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, as it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. So Christ was offered how many times? Once. Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. So several times in this passage, it makes it very clear that Christ was not offered repeatedly, but he was offered once. And in contradiction to this, the Roman Catholics repeatedly offered Jesus over and over again every Sunday in, in the process of the Mass. By their own admission, that's what they're doing. Now, if you'll turn over to chapter 10 of this same book, Hebrews chapter 10, and we'll look at verses 10 through 14. Well, Let's just, let's just read the, the, the whole chapter, chapter 10, beginning at verse 1. It says, For the law, that is the old covenant, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image or the substance of those things, can never with those sacrifices which they offer year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? The answer is yes, if they made people perfect, they would, because that the worshipers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance made again of sins every year. Why? Here's why. The inadequacy of the sacrifice, verse 4, it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. And so all those animal sacrifices never took away anybody's sins. They were symbolic acts of the innocent victim that would come one day and would take away our sins. 
But those sacrifices didn't take away anybody's sins and nobody was saved by those sacrifices. What they were supposed to do is look at those sacrifices and see them as representative of the Messiah who would come and make the perfect sacrifice. And they were uh, to therefore put their trust in that Messiah. And so everyone in the Old Testament was saved by looking forward to God's perfect, final, finished sacrifice in the person of the Messiah, just like we're saved by looking back at God's final, uh, finished and perfect sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ. So it wasn't possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. So verse five, wherefore, when he, Jesus comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering, now what's not, but a body hast thou prepared me. And so the bodies of bulls and goats wouldn't do. God made a body that would do. And that body was, of course, the body of the Lord Jesus. He says in verse 6, In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hadst no pleasure. Those things never satisfied the wrath of God. And then he says in verse 7, Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. Above when he said, sacrifice and offering and burnt offering and offering for sin thou wouldst not, neither add pleasure therein, which are offered by the old covenant, by the law. Then he said, lo, I come to do thy will. He takes away the first, that is those burnt offerings and sacrifices of the old covenant. He takes away the first. <clears throat> Um, that he may establish the second, that is the sacrifice of the body of Christ, which God had prepared for him. By the which will, that is by the will of God, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So that's the body that was sacrificed that would take away sins was the body of Christ, not the body of bulls and goats. Now notice it says in verse 10, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once. How many times did Jesus offer? Once. How many times were the bulls and goats offered? Over and over and over and over again, thousands of times. Notice verse 11, and every priest standing daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, speaking of Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool, for by one offering is he perfected forever them that are sanctified. Now, three times in these four verses, he says there's one sacrifice, there's one sacrifice, and by the way, there's one sacrifice, and it's never supposed to be offered again. That's what the blood of bulls and goats had to do. They had to be offered over and over again, but in contrast to this, this one's never offered again. So this is the reason why the whole Roman Catholic Mass is such an abomination, is because it brings Christ's sacrifice down to the level of the sacrifice of bulls and goats that has to be offered over and over and over and over and over again. So 
in this ordinance, Christ is not offered up to his father, nor any real sacrifice made at all for the remission of the sins of the living and the dead. Why? Because the sacrifice was made 2,000 years ago. It was final. It was finished. And it was never to be repeated ever again. And yet they profess to repeat it every time they celebrate the Mass. Are there any questions or observations or comments? Okay, well then what is the purpose of the Lord's Supper? Well, it goes on to say that the purpose of the Lord's Supper is twofold. It's a memorial, number one, and number two, it's an act of worship. Okay, it's a memorial and it's an act of worship. Now, let's look at Luke 22 and verse 19, in which Jesus himself defined um, the Lord's Supper through his institution of it. And in Luke 22 and verse 19, he says, And he, that is Jesus, took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. So Jesus specifically told us the purpose of the Lord's Supper was to be an act of remembrance. He said, this is why you're doing this. You're doing this to call to mind my sacrifice for you and the redemption that I provided for you. It wasn't to reenact the sacrifice. It was to remember the sacrifice that he was about to act out. And we look back upon as having been acted out. Now, a fuller statement is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, in which Paul relates to us how Jesus instructed him regarding the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 23 through 25. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three, Paul says, For I have received of the Lord that which I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Now notice, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it. Notice in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he comes. So what we're doing when we're eating the bread and we're drinking the cup is that we are showing forth the Lord's death. We're remembering the Lord's death. And so twice he says, do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. This is a showing forth or a symbolic display of my death, my sacrifice. And so that's what the purpose of it is. It is a memorial of that one offering up of himself by himself on the cross once for all. That's what it is. So that's what we're doing when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're remembering. We're not sacrificing. 
we're remembering. Okay, That is, we're not doing a real sacrifice. Now, there's a second purpose of the Lord's Supper, and that is a spiritual oblation or offering of all possible praise to God for the same. And so what we're doing is we are offering up a spiritual offering of praise. Okay. Now we know that the New Testament church is a temple made up of living stones. You people are the stones that make up the temple. And you people are also the priests that function within that temple. And as priests, you make offerings, but the offerings you make are offerings of praise to God. Okay? We don't do animal sacrifices anymore, and we certainly don't reenact the sacrifice of Christ. What we do is we offer to God sacrifices of praise. So um, notice, if you will, Matthew 26, verses 26 and 27, we'll see how Jesus did this. And then we'll see how it's further developed and described in the book of Hebrews. So Matthew 26, verses 26 through 27. And then we'll read verse 30. Matthew 26, 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Now, what's this singing of the hymn business about? Well, the singing of the hymn is just simply the spiritual offering of praise to God for the sacrifice that he had just declared and was about to make. And so... In our communion services, what do we do? We sing hymns of praise to God for the sacrifice that Jesus made. These are the spiritual offerings that we make to God in the communion service. Now, turn please to Hebrews chapter 13. And we'll see this very issue alluded to um, quite clearly. Hebrews chapter 13. And we're going to uh, start out at verse 10. And we'll read down to verse um, 15. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 10. We have an altar whereof they have no right to eat, which serve the tabernacle. So he's contrasting now the altar in the New Covenant Church, the New Testament Church, with the altar and the tabernacle that was still existing in Jerusalem at that time. And uh, he says, for the verse 11, for the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. 
So they, they bring these, this blood in and they offer it in there and then they take the bodies and they take them clear outside the city and they burn them outside the city. Okay, that's what he's saying. Verse 12, wherefore, and here's how Jesus fulfilled that type. Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Where was Jesus sacrificed? Well, it wasn't in the Old Testament temple, was it? It was outside the city on Mount Calvary, right? Um, on Golgotha. And uh, he was sacrificed out there, away from the Old Testament temple. Verse 13, let us go forth therefore unto him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. And of course, he's taking this and he's using it as an image of, of New Testament truth. He says, for here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. That is, God's kingdom is now no longer tied to a piece of geography or to a city. And that's why Jerusalem is not a big deal to us because we don't have a continuing city. Um, we're looking for what? The new Jerusalem. And where is it? In heaven. Same place the true tabernacle is, right? Okay. Now notice verse 15. By him, that is by Jesus, therefore let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. So the sacrifice we offer is the sacrifice of praise for the sacrifice of Jesus who died outside the gate and whose death has uh, no relationship to those sacrifices in the temple that were being offered at this point in time. And we see that that's one of the reasons why God allowed Rome to come and destroy Jerusalem in 70 A.D., and to burn the temple to the ground and disperse the Jews to the four corners of the earth so that that Old Testament sacrifice and sacrificial system would stop and that we would now have um, spiritual worship, spiritual temples, spiritual altars, spiritual sacrifices, spiritual priesthood. And no longer would that system of physical temple and... Um, uh, Levitical priests and animal sacrifices uh, function any longer um, because it's not suitable that that would go on now that um, God has brought his once for all perfect sacrifice. So we're offering up the sacrifice of praise for uh, Jesus having died for us and borne our sins. And we are remembering what he has done. And those are the things that we're doing. And so the conclusion that is drawn at the end of paragraph two is this, so that the popish sacrifice of the mass, as they call it, is most abominable. And why is that? Why would they use such strong language? Because it's injurious to Christ's only own sacrifice, the alone propitiation for all the sins of the elect. So the mass is a contradiction of the single, final, finished sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's a contradiction of that. And that's why it's an abomination. You know, anything that contradicts the heart of the gospel, 
is an abomination to God. Okay, let's not make any mistake about this. There is only one truth. And it's not like, well, these people have their truth and it's valid. And these people over there have their truth and it's valid, even though they contradict each other. Protestantism can't be right if Roman Catholicism is right. And Roman Catholicism can't be right if Protestantism is right. Okay. And when we look at the Bible and when we look at what the Roman Catholics claim to be doing, they're totally contradictory. And that's why we not only reject that, but we label it as being an abomination because if you embrace that, you wind up denying what Jesus did. And you wind up reducing his sacrifice down to the level of the animal sacrifices that have to be offered over and over and over again. And by doing that, you're declaring that that sacrifice wasn't final, finished, fixed, and once for all. And so it's the, the whole mass is a blasphemy of the once for all sacrifice of Christ because they claim they are sacrificing him over and over and over again. And that's intolerable. All right, well, let's pray together. <clears throat> Our Father, we thank you for the fact that our Lord Jesus gave himself once for our sins because he actually did take them away. And we have no more conscience of sins because the guilt of them has been entirely removed by his sacrifice. And so, Father, we do believe in the Lord Jesus and in his once for all sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins. We have no desire for any repetitive or ongoing sacrifice. We are satisfied with the one that was offered 2,000 years ago. We want no other. We need no other. And Lord, we pray for uh, the Catholics that they would see the error of their understanding, that they would read their Bibles and that they would turn from the abomination that the Mass is and the blasphemy to Christ that it is. Lord, we pray that they would become saved and they too would trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins rather than their works and their church and the saints and Mary. Father, I pray that you might help us to be faithful in bearing witness to them and bring these passages to bear upon them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.